0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee-Olivest. Throughout season one of this podcast, we studied essential texts in gender studies through Western civilization. We learned the historical roots of current struggles, such as prescribed roles that men assign to women. We learned that sex is biological, gender is cultural. We learned about hundreds of manifestations of the universal system of patriarchy. But what if many of these concepts are not universal after all? What if Beauvoir's concept of sex and gender is predicated upon her being a 20th century white French woman? What if people in other parts of the world read our quote-unquote essential texts, and the arguments not only don't feel true, they don't even make sense. Today's episode is going to challenge some of our beliefs and assumptions and disagree with some of the authors we've studied that we hadn't even thought to question. We'll be centering the episode on the country of Nigeria, and I'm so excited for this chance to expand our understanding and complicate the narrative with our guest, Olu Timeng Kukoyi. Welcome, Olu. And I hope I got your name okay. You
1: absolutely did. I think the rehearsing was worth it. Very well done.
0: (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. did rehearse. Well, if it's okay, I'd like to start with a formal bio to introduce you, and then I would love you to introduce yourself afterwards with maybe some more personal details. But to introduce you formally, Olutimen Kukoi is an award-winning writer, speaker, and public intellectual whose work focuses on love and freedom. She's known for her insightful analysis of issues relating to feminism, gender, sexualities, and pro-poor urbanization. Her TED Talk on urban inclusion, which was called Who Belongs in a City, was delivered at TED Global in 2017, and it was acclaimed as one of the most notable talks of 2017. And I'll add here, I just listened to it again on my way to do this episode. I am so moved by your TED Talk, Olu. I was, I learned a lot about Lagos Specifically, but then I was also struck by how relevant it felt to me. We lived near San Francisco for many years, and our family would often will just really grapple with the unhoused poor in San Francisco. And I've been reading in the New York Times about the mayor of New York City just this week, who's deciding mm-hmm. what to do about who belongs in a city in Manhattan. So for listeners, the facilitator, Chris Anderson at TED, was absolutely floored by this talk and brought Olu back on stage to talk more because she was just so powerful. So listeners, go watch that TED Talk right now. (laughs) Well, to continue with this, with your formal bio, Olutime has addressed audiences on four continents and has worked with a wide variety of corporate and civil society organizations in her home country of Nigeria and internationally. She was awarded the third Gerald Kroc Prize for her essay, Mothers and Men, which is now available in print in the Chicana media anthology, The Heart of the Matter. She has been published online by a range of platforms, and until its closure was a staff writer at The Correspondent. Her work has been translated into 26 languages, with selected publications incorporated into academic curricula in various countries. And she lives in Lagos with her family. Yes, she does. So that's your official bio from your website, Olu, mm. but I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself a bit more personally as well.
1: Introducing myself is always really interesting, especially if i have now sat through a reading of my official bio because I'm just like, well, how do I follow that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's Um, always uncomfortable, right? It really is.
1: I would, well, to describe myself, I'm currently a writer in transition. What I mean by that is that I spent a good part of the last decade being very vocal and producing knowledge theorizing about my reality shared realities that I would like to change and just being putting out work and I'm in a place now where I think what I'm supposed to be doing is learning from others so Olutime Kukoi is currently a writer in transition exploring other formats of storytelling as well so thinking about performance as a means of driving social change, as opposed to just intellectual output? What does it mean to create narratives that can be embodied, that can be that can invite audiences into the experience, that sort of thing? I'm a wife, a mom, and I like the fact that I can say that and people imagine that I'm married to a man I'm not, <laughs> which is very unheard of in this part of the world, Nigeria is on paper, very hostile to queer people and in practice as well. So we have a culture of sort of don't ask, don't tell. And people don't really make their relationships explicit. But for myself and my partner, not making our relationship explicit wasn't an option. So we're doing an unheard of thing. And it's wow. interesting. We're also very loved by the people who love us. So we're thriving in many ways, despite the challenges that we experience. And I'm very committed to reckless dancing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean?
1: (laughs) It means that I can't hear music without moving my body. And sometimes I move my body even when there is no music. I'm the person who's in the aisle at the supermarket or the grocery store being like,
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. That's so great. Yeah. Uh, and
1: I recently started a feminist, a queer feminist collective called Those Girls. And our whole thing is about telling our stories to one another in ways that help us be more free. Because I think that the biggest thing that you can achieve in this world is to figure out how to belong to yourself and how to do that in community. So. I suppose these are my preoccupations, my inclinations, my interests, and I guess mm. this works as some sort of introduction to who I am.
0: <laughs> it does, indeed. If you could just maybe back up just a tiny bit and tell us where you were born and where you grew up. Oh, well. in Lagos.
1: I was born in Lagos. I've always lived in Lagos. I my Well, my family is from different parts of Nigeria. But my grandfather moved to Lagos in the 40s and got married here, even though he met my grandmother elsewhere. They got married here and they they've raised their children here. This is my maternal grandfather. And then my mother married my father in Lagos as well, even though they met elsewhere in Nigeria. And all of us kids grew up here, but we have ties to our hometowns in Sapale, which is in Delta State to the south of Lagos, and in Ogun State, which is to the southwest of Lagos. If I were American, I would say that I'm from Lagos, but because in Nigeria we have a different concept of where you're from, I say that I'm from Delta State or from Ogun State.
0: Oh, that's interesting, because your grandfather is from there. Yes,
1: so so you think, oh. of, you think of where we're from as where your ancestral home is as opposed to where you've grown up. Although I think now it's changing a bit because we're so exposed to U.S. American culture. People are like, yeah, I'm from Lagos because they were born here, but that's not traditionally how the average Nigerian would describe where they're
0: from. Yeah, that's really interesting. That is different. I suppose also we move so often and a lot of our ancestors are so new to the United States. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that would be hard to trace where Mm -hmm. we're from. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'd also love to give our listeners before we dive into some of the content, I'd love to give listeners kind of a sense of place. And so if you could just quickly orient us to basic facts about Nigeria, that would be great to kind of set the lay of the land a bit. Oh,
1: okay. This is fun. I should say thank you for providing the framework that allows me to do this in the first place. (laughs) So there are some details in here that I myself Only just discovered. So picture how the continent is like a number seven, and Nigeria is the point on the west coast where the top line meets the vertical line. It's directly south of Niger, and it's the country with the largest population on the continent. It's 206 million Black people. It's a lot of us. (laughs) And also has the largest GDP on the continent, even though the way this wealth is distributed is deeply inequitable. We have over 250 ethnic groups and 500 languages, the most popular of which is called Yoruba. Uh, I think that's because so many people who were enslaved were from Yoruba nation states or tribes. But, you know, maybe that's just a theory. So the history of the region that is now known as Nigeria includes settlers trading along the Middle East and the African Sahel as early as 1100 BC. Numerous indigenous civilizations settled in the region, such as the Kingdom of Imri, the Benin Empire, which is one of my favorite empires to talk about and think about, and the Oyo Empire. Islam reached Nigeria around 1068 CE, and Christianity arrived in the 15th century through Augustinian and Capuchin monks from Portugal. From the 15th century onward, European slave traders arrived in the region, to purchase enslaved Africans as part of the transatlantic slave trade. The capital city of Lagos and Kvat here, Lagos was originally the capital of Nigeria. It is now Abuja. So the former political, now economic capital was occupied by British forces in 1851 and formally colonized by Britain in 1865. Nigeria was declared a British protectorate in 1901. But fun fact, the country and the entity known as Nigeria did not exist until 1914. So there was the Southern Protectorate and the Northern Protectorate, but the amalgamation of these two protectorates to become Nigeria happened in 1914. And then the period of British rule lasted until 1960, when our independence movement succeeded in regaining significant political control of our land.
0: Yeah, that's great. And as yes, as you read that, and I should have introduced this section this way, I did do a little bit of research on Nigeria. And I provided an outline before only because I didn't want to ask you to do (laughs) spend your time doing research. And I said, I I just want this to be transparent for listeners to kind of this process I've never been to Nigeria. This is completely new to me. This is your homeland. You're born and raised there. And so I felt a bit of, I mean, discomfort to be honest. And as I was looking for good sources online, I thought, like, I don't know who wrote this. Mm-hmm. It's written by a white colonizer that's like in Encyclopedia Britannica that's talking about Nigeria. And sure enough, I wrote what I thought was hopefully a factual and neutral overview of Nigeria, but you had some changes to make, Mm -hmm. Olu, right? When you looked at it, can you talk about that for just a sec?
1: I think it's important to not, well, to do what you did in first instance, which is to interrogate what are the sources of this knowledge, but also to then not use passive or euphemistic language to describe what actually happened here, right? Because Nigeria as an entity, is actually a colonial construct. There's no such thing in our indigenous conception, there's no such thing as Nigeria. The nations that we belonged to, the ethno states that we belonged to, were created and maintained along lines of kinship, along lines of trade, as opposed to borders that were defined by European powers for European interests, right? So Nigeria is a Creation of the British. Nigeria originally existed only as an economic enterprise to generate income for the British through our natural resources, through our labor. And it is only in the wake of our independence movement that we started to define a nationality for ourselves outside of being colonial subjects. It hasn't always gone well. In fact, arguably, it's gone terribly. And it's difficult to separate the trajectory that the country is on from the trajectory that it was set on when these disparate nations were sort of lumped together by outside forces. So as a Nigerian living in Nigeria and a person who thinks about my reality in the context of post-colonial Africa, post-colonial activity, it's... My relationship to the country is complicated. It's complex. There's no tidy way to describe the history, and there's no tidy way to describe the present. So all we can do is interrogate and illuminate to the best of our ability.
0: Thank you for that. Would you, it, I'd also love to ask you because you mentioned that the Benin Empire is one of your favorites yes. to think about and talk about. Can you tell us why? Could we dive in there a little more deeply, just for oh, a couple yes, minutes?
1: Absolutely. So. Well, it's a couple of things, right? The Benin Empire was a site of significant resistance to British and Portuguese and to some degree French colonial activity. So it shows up in European records quite a bit. As you may be aware, there aren't many indigenous West African cultures that are literary, right? We didn't, we had historically oral traditions rather than written traditions. So the records that we have are written records created by colonial forces because the mechanisms for transferring knowledge orally were interrupted, right, by colonization. So that's the first thing, that we have quite a bit of information about the Benin kingdom or the Benin empire in relation to other empires, such as the Nok Empire or Ife, or even the Oyo Yoruba Empire that we're going to be talking about in this conversation today. And because there's written record, those of us today who are interested can see how rich that society was and what its priorities were in terms of protecting its people. So the Benin Empire, for instance, had the largest city wall on record, in West Africa, right? And the city's urban planning was beyond anything that colonial forces had ever encountered because it was designed based on this mathematical system known as fractals, right? So there was a center and then there was a formula that determined how the city expanded beyond the political center where the King's Palace and the wives, well, I don't know, calling them wives, Calling them wives is interesting, but there were ceremonial responsibilities that were held by the family that occupied the palace, right? And the queen mother and the wives of the king, since we're speaking English, had their responsibility. And the city was designed, was laid out in a way that showed not just the material priorities of the people, but also the spiritual and the social priorities of the people. And there was the use of brass and ivory and coral to create art. So this was a society that was not just interested in the safety of its people, the spiritual well-being of its people, but also in cultural production and the maintenance of historical records through song and through carvings and through ritual. So the Benin Empire is really there, there's so much history, so much legend, and it's a great source of pride for Benin people specifically, but also for anyone who considers themselves Nigerian, because this is an empire whose greatness outlived even the worst kind of violence. Because this, this city was burned to the ground, it was looted and destroyed by the Portuguese. But despite the immense violence that was done to attempt to erase it from history, we still have all of these records of its greatness. So for me, Mm -hmm. there's some power and pride there that I, even though I'm not beneath myself, I still hold it very dear.
0: So, what year roughly would that have been that the Portuguese came and burned the city? So the Portuguese
1: arrived or started. Trading with Benin in the 16th centuries around the 1500s that you mentioned in your piece, but the kingdom was destroyed in
0: 1897. Wow, that is. A lot more recent than I yeah, expected. Yeah, the king
1: was deposed. A lot of the art was stolen. So if you go to the British Museum, for instance, oh. it's still under contention till this day, you know, the yeah. question of repatriation of the bronzes that were stolen in 80- Oh, I hate
0: that. <laughs> my, I have a daughter, especially, that, that studies history. Well, all of my children study history. And we have, like, the, that's a big thing that comes up a lot is that we feel strongly that colonizing countries need to return art to the countries that they stole it from. Mm -hmm. And there was a I think there's a Netflix special on it right now where there was this white British historian that was like, I'm so grateful for all of the African art that I grew up seeing, completely oblivious (laughs) to the fact that he was saying, like, how nice for you. You're not but that like so that literally means that people who for whom that is their cultural heritage didn't get to grow up looking Absolutely. at their own art because Absolutely. you were looking at it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's infuriating. And also oh. it just
1: really this is a whole other conversation, but it, it, it reveals a very it. different, the very fundamental difference between the British slash European approach to art and cultural production and African perspectives on these things, because the British are like, we'll take this and then we'll put it in a glass box to look at. But these creations had purpose within the societies that they were taken from. They had ritual purpose. They had storytelling purpose. They had child raising purpose, Like. The veneration purposes to remember the ancestors, to honor royalty or valiant contributors to society, to represent gods, to represent spiritual forces who weren't necessarily gods but perhaps divinities. And so they had function in everyday life, they were part of life as opposed to something that you visited to look at. And then, hmm. you know, so it wasn't about preservation of relics. It's about the fact that something that was a part of everyday life has been removed. And so there's a spiritual loss there on top of oh. everything else.
0: I'm so sorry. Thank you for highlighting that. All right. Let's move into a book that you recommended when we started planning this episode. I mean, it's it's impossible, right? Tell us about patriarchy in Nigeria. That I mean, it's just too huge mm-hmm. of... Too huge and too complex. And so I was grateful that you recommended this book that we could use at least as one lens to start approaching some of these topics. And so I read this book called The Invention of Women. And you'll have to help me with the author's name again because I'm going to really try to get it as closely correct as I can. Can Mm -hmm. you say it? And then I'll try to say it after you.
1: Um, So her name is Oyerunke Oyerunni.
0: Oye ronke, oye wumi. Yeah. Was that close-ish? It was close. Okay. It wasn't as good as the first
1: time, but it was we close.
0: Practiced <laughs> <laughs> we practiced before. The first time you I... did
1: a really good job. I was so impressed. I... You did oh, a gosh. really okay. good
0: job. <laughs> well, I'll practice again after, but I fear that if I try to do this, I'm just going to get too nervous and then I'm <laughs> no, okay. going to get worse. Instead it was of very better. close. I'll... It was close. Well, thank Thank you. So this book was so interesting to me and kind of provided the framework that I talked about in the intro of this episode that she invited me to ask questions that I hadn't known could even be asked. And so I'd love you to just introduce listeners to this work. Tell us about this author's thesis and what you think of it. Ooh,
1: so, yeah, The Invention of Women is a book that I consider a seminal work of African feminism. And I say this because Professor Oyewumi's entire argument is that there is no such thing as a universal category or a universal experience of womanhood. And beyond that, even, that gender as a whole is not a fundamental social category in all cultures. And I know that this is not a thing that is foregrounded in most feminist discourse, right? Like In feminist discourse, we generally assume that gender exists and then we problematize gender. Professor Oyomi's argument is that maybe gender doesn't exist everywhere. And here's an example of a place where there's evidence that gender doesn't actually exist. So her work is located in the context of Oyo Yoruba society. And she uses the way that Yoruba language works in that there is no gender in the language. Pronouns are not gendered. Physical objects are not gendered. Gender doesn't exist in the language. And then the fact that the society is organized around seniority to argue that gender was an imposition that was placed upon this society. And then more broadly, that gender is an imposition that has been placed on indigenous societies that were colonized outside of Africa, right? So her argument isn't necessarily that every society relates to gender or relates to women in the same way, but more that there are many societies that just don't have the conception of gender that we take for granted in the contemporary global order. The title of the book, I think, is a very good summation. The Invention of Women argues that for colonization to take place and to take root successfully, colonizing forces had to, through laws, through taxation, through strategic disempowerment in some directions and empowerment in other directions, through formal education, had to create a social context that then made the European conception of gender not just relevant, but then inescapable. But that this is not native to the Yoruba people, and you only have to look at the language. And the social order that is based on seniority to see that this is true.
0: Yeah, so interesting. So the concept of gender that we assume, we we meaning me, as I did this education project and just took all of these feminists that I was reading at their word and just saying, oh, yes, of course, and assumed to be universal. Mm-hmm. She's saying it's actually not universal. And so it's really, really mind-blowing and really useful. If I can share a couple of passages from her book that were really illuminating and showed me new ways of thinking, maybe I can share a passage and then you can comment on it. Olu, would mm-hmm. that work? Absolutely. Okay. So one of the first and most fundamental things that that I just had to kind of stop and think about is she said that in the West, we think of the body and biology and anatomy as destiny. And so people are primarily perceived as their bodies. And we reduce each other to our physical features. And we assume we know things about each other just by seeing each other's bodies, right? Like we Mm -hmm. look and we see gender as it's expressed, we see race, we see, you know, skin and hair, and then we make a bunch of assumptions based on those visual cues. And so here's a question that again, when I referred to like questions that I didn't even know could be asked, Mm -hmm. he says, this is because white Westerners privilege sight over other senses. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to read a quote from the book. She says, quote, "'The reason that the body has so much presence in the West is that the world is primarily perceived by sight. The differentiation of human bodies in terms of sex, skin color, and cranium size is a testament to the powers attributed to seeing.'" The gaze is an invitation to differentiate. Mm -hmm. Different approaches to comprehending reality then suggest epistemological differences between societies. And for listeners who don't know, epistemology is the study of how we know things. So she's saying that there are foundational differences between societies in how we know what we know or we think we know what we know. So back to the quote, she says, relative to Yoruba society, which is the focus of this book, the body has an exaggerated presence in the Western conceptualization of society. Okay, here's what blew my mind. She says, the term worldview, which is used in the West to sum up the cultural logic of a society, captures the West's privileging of the visual. It is Eurocentric to use it to describe cultures that may privilege other senses. And so she uses the. It, she doesn't use the term worldview. She uses the term world sense because mm-hmm. that is more authentic to what the Yoruba experience would be. So for me, honestly, I had to sit there. I literally put the book down and thought, <laughs> I don't know how you would, how I would even perceive the world except through sight. It's it that would be very difficult. And she said the term world sense is a more inclusive way of describing the conception of the world by different cultural groups.
1: Yeah, to add to what you said, Professor Oyomi says that, you know, the Yoruba require more contextualizing because we are more auditory. So a world conceived of, this is a quote, by the way, a world conceived of as a whole in which all things are linked together. This is the Yoruba world, right? Human beings inhabit many worlds. It does not privilege the physical world over the metaphysical A concentration on vision as the primary mode of comprehending reality promotes what can be seen over that which is not apparent to the eye. It misses the other levels and nuances of existence. So remember how we were talking about how to pronounce Mm -hmm. Professor Yomi's name, for instance, and I explained to you that the Yoruba language is tonal. So this is one of the things, if you think about how European or Eurocentric society privileges sight, I would say Mm -hmm. that your society, pre-colonial or uncolonial, decolonial, <laughs> privileges story. And story is something that transcends the physical world. Like you said, it, it also has spiritual, not just it has spiritual, mental, social implications. And it shows up in all of our practices, in our naming practices, in the praise songs that we sing, in the ways that we communicate through nonverbal communication, for instance, using drums or using fabric. There are so many ways that we tell stories about the world that we live in, the world that we occupy, which is shared with divinities, which is shared with forces beyond the physical. And so the idea that you could understand or fully grasp reality just by looking at something or looking at someone is actually extremely limiting, right? there's more life than what meets the eye, basically. So that's why, or I imagine that's why she deprioritizes the idea of a worldview in favor of a world sense, because then you're sensing the world through, there are so many things (laughs) that I've heard about that were done in pre-colonial European societies, how messages could be sent in the way that food was prepared, how a dish was covered, the number of threads woven into a fabric could communicate someone's willingness or preparedness to receive a lover, that sort of thing. It's not it, the sort of overt, explicit, sight based world that we live in now is not the world that, that pre-colonial Yoruba society occupied from my understanding. I think I mentioned to you another book that I think could be interesting for your readers called Sensuous Knowledge by Mina Salami. Mm-hmm. And in, in her book, Salami talks about knowledge from two perspectives. Ogoinu is the inner knowing. So this is, again, similar to Oyoomi's world sense. A knowing that comes not from what you have seen, not from what is explicit, but for, rather from what is sensed what is intuited as a result of being highly aware of or highly attuned to one's social reality or the social milieu in which one is conducting one's life. So there is a richer world that exists beyond what is immediately visible, immediately apparent. And that's the world that Oye Umi invites her readers into as she begins to explain the process by which women or womanhood and therefore patriarchy, was imposed on Yoruba society.
0: Yes, thank you. Yes, for that foundational kind of understanding of a different way of understanding the world and relating to other human beings within it. So one other part of the book that I thought was kind of foundational, again, kind of questioned the assumptions that I had as a Westerner was that she makes the comparison between the western tradition at least the greeks and the legacy that we inherited in the west from the greeks and i was thinking this too as i was reading along i thought okay so the in for the greeks the body was actually looked down on as base and low and it was associated with the feminine which the greeks disdained and then she so she mm-hmm. wrote quote And I'm going to share this quote from her. She said, until recently, if bodies appeared at all in the Western record, they are articulated as the debased side of human nature. The preferred focus has been on the mind, lofty and high above the foibles of the flesh. Early in Western discourse, a binary opposition between body and mind emerged. The body was seen as a trap from which any rational person had to escape. Many thinkers denied the body's existence for certain categories of people, most notably themselves. Bodilessness has been a precondition of rational thought. Women, primitives, Jews, Africans, the poor, and all those who qualified for the label different in varying historical epics have been considered to be the embodied, dominated therefore by instinct, reason being beyond them. They are the other. In European thought, despite the fact that society was seen to be inhabited by bodies, only women were perceived to be embodied. Men had no bodies. They were walking minds. Mm -hmm. That's the end of the quote. I just thought that was such an interesting and succinct way of summing that up. And just that that mind-body duality that we have in the West, Mm -hmm. mind, which is the masculine, Mm -hmm. rules the body, which is the feminine. And the point is the way of experiencing the world, that way of knowing is not universal, right? That's what she's saying is the Greeks thought of the mind being above the body and the masculine being among or above the feminine, but among the Yoruba, that was not the case, right? Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Well,
1: I don't know if I would say it wasn't the case, so much as it didn't even exist, so it's not culturally relevant at all. That separation is not, I don't think, is culturally relevant. So in Mina Salami's book, which I, again, will highly recommend to anybody who is interested in exploring African feminisms, she describes these two forms of knowledge, Ogbun-Nu and Ogbun-Ori, Ogma inu being intuitive knowledge or embodied knowledge, and Ogba Uri being intellectual knowledge. And I think the way that she presents makes it very clear that there is no duality. These two forms of knowledge exist in all people, or rather, all people have the capacity for these two forms of knowledge. And in fact, to be fully actualized as a person, you need to develop both. So there is no duality in the sense of opposition, but there is duality if one thinks about integration, right? So embodiment is intrinsic to the ability to have a robust world sense, even as intellectual pursuit is intrinsic. These two things must marry for a person to be fully actualized. There is no such thing as a rational human being who is not subjective, right? Mm -hmm. This the idea that the height of reason is to be a floating head (laughs) is fallacious. And I think when we observe the crises of loneliness or disconnection or increasing violence that we're surrounded by or that are overtaking so many of our societies, I think these crises come from the idea that you can divorce yourself from embodiment or that you should in fact divorce yourself that is desirable or necessary or a sign of evolution of higher being of superiority to divorce yourself from embodiment so the duality I think is a misconception that I'm quite Lucky, I think, to come from a culture that wasn't laboring under this misconception and instead a culture that pursued integration. Yeah.
0: Yeah. This is like a new thought for me. And I think for a lot of people as we're trying to move past that duality and that kind of the divorcing of the different parts of ourselves. And of course, Mm -hmm. the rational, the unembodied head was the masculine and that ruled over the, I mean, that whole thing has just messed everything up. But it's a new thought, Mm -hmm. what you just described, to be integrated, it's present in all human beings, regardless of gender, we have, you know, the need and the capacity, like you said, for rational thought and for intuition and to be embodied. Mm -hmm. I feel like the West just took this crazy misguided path so long ago and now we're trying to get back to it seems like what other cultures knew all along and never took that wrong path Mm -hmm. thinking I guess
1: and I do wonder sometimes about the origins of that I wonder how it came to be that European societies not all of them but southern European societies in particular I think ended up on such a (laughs) Mm -hmm. such a dehumanizing path. And I know that we talk all the time about the oppression that is visited upon or has been visited upon the rest of the world by Europe and Eurocentric ideas and structures, ETC. But I think it's important to understand that the original victim of this system is the Western person, is Mm -hmm. the Western culture, is the Western society. The first set of people to be divorced from their own humanity by these patriarchal structures, these oppressive structures, these hierarchical structures that insist on interiorizing others were Europeans. Mm -hmm. And unless there is a reckoning, an internal reckoning with how a lust for power, a lust for obscene wealth Mm -hmm. (laughs) and control over others At the expense of everything, has really destroyed the fabric of white Western society in particular. Considering the rise of like fascist ideology and the degree to which violence is being democratized in places like the US, for example, I think that white Western Anglo-Saxon descendants really need to ask themselves some important questions about the direction that they're headed in as a collective. I know we don't talk about the white community much, but I think that the white community really needs to slow down and interrogate the direction it's going in because this myth of superiority, this myth of rationality, the myth of objectivity that has been fed to all of us really for centuries, is making it so difficult for white people in particular to fully actualize themselves. So I remember, I remember, for instance, the first time I visited England as a child, being deeply heartbroken by the number of elderly people who I saw by themselves. You know, you would be at the bus station or at the shops and there would be somebody clearly in their 70s or 80s having mobility issues and there was nobody there Mm. supporting them, looking out for them. And I just couldn't understand it. I remember asking Mm. my mom, where's their family? Like, why are they alone? Wow. And I, I think that aloneness that has been produced as a result of prioritizing head knowledge, as a result of prioritizing what is framed as the masculine control, money, power over what is understood to be the feminine community, nurture and care has really kneecapped the white community, white society, white cultures. And unfortunately, if it doesn't stop, we're going to, it's going to take the whole world down with it. You know, like the climate crisis is a patriarchal crisis because it's a crisis that has been produced by overproduction and overproduction is a colonial logic, It's like this idea that there will always be more to be extracted. It comes from colonization. It comes from whiteness as not an identity, but as an ideology. So there is deep work that needs to be done to allow white communities, white societies to remember what, Indigenous societies who didn't divorce themselves from the land, didn't divorce themselves from their ancestry, didn't divorce themselves from the metaphysical and the spiritual world. It's important for white societies to begin to remember these types of knowledge, even if it means just like accepting Mm -hmm. that there is no such thing as inferior and superior. There is only what supports life and what produces death.
0: Wow. That was a pretty, that's a quite an indictment. And I couldn't agree more with you. I do. I mean, I. it's all around us. There's no denying it. Right. And mm-hmm. I guess just all of us, it's on us to decide what we're going to do moving forward, given. Yeah. The egregious sins of the past and, of you know, the group that I belong to of my own ancestors. It's a heavy, it's heavy to bear and, and that. Even and, beyond what is
1: like ancestral, what is at present, because if one is it's like, there's only so much that can be done about the past, right? It's important to learn about the past so as not to repeat those pitfalls. But it's like, what is possible in the present based on what is known of the past to interrupt this process that is just producing more and more harm, producing so much harm within the family. It's not coincidental that so many people who are mass shooters, for instance, also have records of domestic violence or gender-based violence. It's Mm. not coincidental that so many, I don't know what incels, I think they're called, are being produced by, like it's not coincidental. So beyond even like ancestral, grappling with ancestral legacies, which truly is an immense task. There is the task of the present. How can the present be interrupted? And redirected in it in a way that reduces the harm and the violence that so many of us now have to contend with.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I do, and yes, and I suppose that's a great way of summing up why to to what end are we looking at history? And for me, mm-hmm. it's personally. It is just exactly what you said, to look at history and understand why we are where we are so that we don't continue kind of mindlessly on this same trajectory that we've been on for centuries, for millennia in some cases. And like I said, to read The Invention of Women, for example, and see in the Yoruba another possibility of how to live a human life, that it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be this way. It's not universal. It's not through all times and places. And it opens my mind, at least, to other to other possibilities, and we can use that to inform what we want to do next. Absolutely. Um, so I'm wondering, maybe we can just say a couple more things about the Yoruba before we move on to modern Nigeria, because I think it was so interesting to just to, to I guess, wrap this up, this theme of a society that is less visual and less kind of categorizing into like, you are this kind of person, you are that kind of person. Um, and she talks about how, like, I mean, obviously there are biological facts that there is a type of person who becomes pregnant and gives birth. But yes. I mean, that's observable in real life, in practical life. But she says it, mm. the difference was that those biological facts did not determine. Who could become the monarch, or who could trade in the market? Just mm-hmm. somebody who gave birth, but then it was much more communal in terms of raising that child. And one thing, and you just—I mean, what you just talked about, even in your own life, observing downstream, still—it sounds like still part of Nigerian culture is that that Absolutely. you know communal sense of family, which is really cool. But one one more thing I wanted to say, and you mentioned this earlier, is that. She talks about in the book how when Europeans arrived, of course, they wanted to record everything in written language, right? All of these things that had been oral tradition. And so when they were writing down what they were observing in these cultures, in these societies, they were, I'm sure they were interviewing people too, but then just observing through their own experience, through their own lenses. And one mistake they made that she points out in the book is that, when they were writing down kind of like the lineage of monarchs, that they Mm -hmm. would filter what they heard through, again, their own lenses. And so they would hear this person was the monarch. And then that person before them was the monarch. And they would write them as kings because they would assume they were masculine. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) And so they just assumed all these patriarchal norms and then they Mm -hmm. correctly recorded them. And then in addition to that, imposed their own European patriarchal norms on the culture. And so I think one of the things she's saying in her book is that, yes, there is patriarchy in Nigeria, but it doesn't go back forever. And it's mostly the fault of Europeans. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: Yes, yes. So this could be a good place to mention that Professor Ryomi has another book called What Gender is Motherhood? Mm. And in this book, she explores Yeah, this biological fact that we've pointed out here, which is just that only certain types of bodies can get pregnant, right? But what does that mean in the Yoruba world sense when certain types of bodies can get pregnant? And how is society organized around motherhood as opposed to, you know, gender? And I think it's a really interesting book. So that's another recommendation for listeners if they're interested. So it wasn't just that patriarchal, that is, gendered interpretations were imposed on narratives around monarchy, for instance. It was also assumptions around the extent of control that these monarchs had over the societies that they were part of, right? Mm -hmm. So we must think of patriarchy not just as a system of gender organizing, but more importantly, as a system of power organizing. And It is a system that organizes power according to gender. It's not just a gendered system. So the assumptions were made, one, that the monarchs mentioned were men, two, that these men had the divine right of kings similar to what exists or existed in Europe. And both of these assumptions were incorrect, right? And it took a lot of time and the unearthing of more accurate interpretations of oral traditions by Indigenous scholars. So some of these rebuttals were written 80, 90 years after the original mistranslation had been done. So when you think about almost a century passing where a society has been represented as having only male monarchs. there's a lot of work that needs to be done to undo that idea. So there are a lot of Yoruba people who don't know that there were rulers in our society who were cisgender women. There were also ritual obligations around monarchy in relation to motherhood, right? So this is where it gets interesting in the sense that any body, any physical body, could occupy the throne or could occupy the place of a monarch but pregnancy was not traditionally allowed within monarchy so do you see how biological facts are not actually irrelevant so because this is an argument that people sometimes make it's like well you know gender may be social but biology is biology and a woman being king doesn't mean xyz but it's like yeah even if women didn't exist in the contemporary sense, pregnancy has always existed. And there was a separation often in many Yoruba societies between the monarchy and motherhood. Because both a monarch and a mother have extremely significant spiritual responsibilities in their society. And those two responsibilities generally do not and cannot mix, right? So these are nuances that are just lost in translation when you know, an ethnographer is like, just tell me the lineage and I'll write it down. These are things mm-hmm. that the teller, for instance, can take for granted because that's their world sense. So there's no need to make it explicit.
0: Right. But the right, hearer right yep.
1: is hearing not just what is being said, but what they understand to be what is possible about what is being. So there's so much nuance and context that's lost. I think I've forgotten the original question. I'm going off on a tangent now.
0: <laughs> no, but, not at um, all. No, that's right.
1: Now we have a much more simplistic understanding of the role of the man or the role of the woman in society because our society has taken up By way of formal education, by way of religious indoctrination, by way of social and economic rewards, we've taken up so many of these Eurocentric ideas to the point now where there are people who believe that Yoruba society has always been identically patriarchal to Mm -hmm. European societies. And I'm just like, how can you possibly Mm -hmm. believe that we don't even have a way to distinguish between a man and a woman in our language? How... (laughs) Like, wow. all our pronouns are non-gendered. The only way that you can distinguish between people using pronouns is along the lines of seniority. And this is this one of the central points of the book, right? It's like, your society is not organized according to gender. It's actually organized according to seniority. And seniority is not just a function of, like, birth order within a lineage, for instance. It's a bit more complex in the sense that seniority... Is about how time intersects with social activity. So Oyomi explains how within a a particular lineage, if someone is my sibling or my uncle or my mother, they have seniority within the bloodline that seems to be just based on age, right? Mm -hmm. However, if someone were to marry into the family, an anatomical female, as or as Oyomi describes. In her book, an Anna female to if an Anna female were to marry into the family, regardless of her age, regardless of her chronological age in relation to me, she would actually be junior, because the time at which she has entered the lineage is a time after which I entered the lineage. So there is this question of senior and junior, which is very different from the question of superior and inferior
0: right yeah yeah for sure
1: so there are assumptions of respect assumptions of deference that will be made assumptions of power even as far as it comes to controlling resources making decisions that are organized according to these questions of seniority and then seniority doesn't only exist in the context of bloodline right it also exists in the context of trade or spiritual responsibility apprenticeship in the ifa system for instance there are many ways and many contexts in which seniority plays out but we have a way in our language of denoting the senior if I were to refer to someone as my senior I would refer to them as a and if I were to refer to someone who was my contemporary or my junior I would refer to them as o and then if I wasn't sure where they stood in the order of things, I would just use the neutral more, which confers sufficient respect that if they're a senior, they will not be offended, but also doesn't necessarily assert that I am a junior.
0: Oh, interesting. And then do they reply in a way that says, oh yeah, I'm your senior. And you're like, okay, so you kind of establish it in the conversation. Yeah, it usually
1: tends to come out in conversation or Uh in interaction, right? So that's also another thing that comes out of communal interactions right you can get your cues for how to conduct yourself from others it's not just so interpersonal interaction is also communal interaction and so things don't necessarily have to Mm. be made explicit remember what I said Mm. that there are so many ways to communicate that exist so in the fabric that a person is wearing and where they're seated in a gathering in the way that they're greeted by people who come into the so you see there there are many ways that you can. Be clued in to where somebody stands in relation to you, and there are also ways in which your relationship might shift. So there might be context, perhaps in the lineage. I'm a junior, whereas as maybe a tradesperson, I'm a senior with the same with the same person, right? So we can occupy multiple identities and interact with each other along multiple positionalities, because these things are dynamic and they're fluid. And I think that's also part of why power can be negotiated, or Oyomi argues that power can be negotiated within Yoruba society in a way that isn't necessarily possible in a post-colonial Eurocentric society, because these identities and these positions are not fixed Right? So mm-hmm. there's something I really mm-hmm. enjoy about Yoruba culture, which is that even though it's organized along principles of seniority and therefore respect, there are many mechanisms for the junior to call out misbehavior, misconduct, abuses of power from the senior. So mm-hmm. even though there is a differential in seniority, there isn't or in rank, there isn't necessarily a differential in power. Right. And if you understand that it is fixed differentials in power that produce abuse, then you can see how a flexible dynamic system makes it a bit harder to be oppressive.
0: Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what you're saying is you don't just continue for hundreds of years with oppression that nobody is allowed to talk about until finally explodes in the Me Too no, movement or because, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Because there are ways, right? There are ways yeah, that if, if,
1: course if correct. for instance, a junior woman encountered a senior man who was abusive, she could use the power of women who are senior to that man, just as a theoretical example, to shame him, to curb him, to prevent him from continuing to be oppressive so it's not Mm -hmm. to say that Yoruba society is this utopia where harm isn't done or abuse doesn't take place but that because power is flexible and dynamic within the society and even the junior is empowered through mocking songs for instance there isn't a word in Yoruba Mm. called that is anbaya which is an elder who disgraces their elder position Mm. right so there are frameworks within the society that allow you to assert that somebody has authority or seniority and is not wielding it well. Hmm. Right. Yeah.
0: Wow. Fascinating. I do want to ask kind of at the end of our conversation to the question about modern Nigeria. And of course, this is, will just sound like a rhetorical question, but to say, so does patriarchy exist in your experience in Nigeria? And if so, how? oh, my God, absolutely. Right, I mean, I mean, it can sound like, oh, it's completely free of these patriarchal constructs. I know that's not quite the case. So how mm-hmm. would you answer that question?
1: Oh, my goodness. Nigeria, if we were to go back to some of the points that we discussed earlier in the conversation, Nigeria is a colonial construct. Right. And it's not possible for something that emerged from colonization to be devoid of colonial ideologies for Nigeria to succeed it had to perpetuate the structures the systems that were put in place when it was created so yes nigeria is absolutely a patriarchal society the obvious examples being you know in interpersonal relationships within the family within institution yeah. patriarchy is everywhere so we have taken on through our formal education system, through religion and through media conditioning, the idea that the man is the natural superior and the woman is the natural inferior. And because we have, because cisgender women, children and queer people are made vulnerable within these systems, there are now social mechanisms that exist to maintain this patriarchy so domestic violence is frowned upon and condemned publicly but it's extremely rampant violence against children which is another form of domestic violence so normalized people vehemently defend their right to beat children to abuse children by you know overworking them or using them as little adults within the home right burdening them with responsibility beyond their capacity to bear this is very Mm. normal and then there's the violence that comes from class and poverty which is also very widespread Nigeria is a very classist society as you might imagine if the British were the colonizers here then Mm. we would just Take on classism very naturally. And we do believe that wealth is a virtue and poverty is deserving of punishment and suffering. It's and it shows up in the way that we interact with poor people, the way that we impoverish people and then blame them for their poverty. There's also state violence, right? Which is, I think, one of the more under-discussed forms of patriarchal violence in this country. But like the Violence that happens in the context of the home or the family is mirrored by the violence that happens in the context of the state. So police brutality is an issue here, not in the same ways that it exists in the U.S. The odds that police officers will just randomly shoot large numbers of people over the course of time aren't very high. But extrajudicial arrests, beatings, extortion, these things all happen. So patriarchy is very present and there's almost no way to escape it regardless of how you're conducting your life. As long as you are seen, (laughs) seen to be a person who is inferior within patriarchy, you will have to experience or navigate or negotiate with these forces. And then there's just no escaping it in these modern times. There just isn't.
0: Can you talk a little bit about initiatives or movements that do exist that are trying to deconstruct those systems? There are many formal and informal
1: movements that exist, I would say. Being a young feminist myself, or youngish at this point, Mm -hmm. I've been part of some of the more recent movements, but there have been... Organized movements around gender and around labor in Nigeria since the 70s and the 80s, some of them led actually by women in very traditional but very powerful roles. So I'm thinking about, I believe it was called Women in Nigeria, that was led by the wife of the then president. No, actually, he was in military. General. So this was a person who had taken over the country via coup, but then his wife started a grassroots movement to organize market women in physical labor, women who didn't necessarily have um, tertiary formal education or even secondary formal education. And so women in Nigeria was quite a strong movement, I believe, in the 80s in Nigeria. organized around gender, around physical safety in the context of marriage and heterosexual relationships and around labor. And then subsequently there have been other movements that were offshoots of that. I know Nigeria had a very strong presence at the Beijing conference in 1995 because I've been connected with some of the feminists who were working on issues then of women's rights activists because also feminism is contested here there there are many women who are like yeah i believe in the rights of women but i'm not a feminist because they think feminism is too radical and it's like man made but so besides the women's rights movements or the feminist movement more recently there's also the lgbtq rights movements young queer people are just they're not having it anymore Long and short. It's just like we're not, we don't have to put up with this. And there's a lot of energy and organizing going on around building capacity, strengthening people's self identity and their ability to heal from the traumas of growing up in a patriarchal and queer phobic and transphobic society like Nigeria, agitating for rights. I know that there have been efforts to overturn the laws that criminalize queer existence and expression in Nigeria. So even though patriarchy is very deeply embedded in our society, it's not unchallenged, right? I know that
0: mm-hmm.
1: some high-profile pastors have been called out for their abuses of power, raping con- congregants. And like the progress is the progress is slow but it's happening, right? It's yeah. there.
0: That's great to hear. Yeah. I was I was actually going to ask you earlier when you were introducing yourself and talking about your current family, is your marriage legal? Is same-sex no. marriage? Al- oh. No.
1: Same-sex marriage is explicitly outlawed. Same-sex relationships, same-sex affection, living together, all of these things are explicitly outlawed.
0: Affection? Like but you can't hold hands in public? You can't hold hands. But
1: strangely enough, same-sex identity... I guess maybe that's not strange because how do you legislate against identity? Although the US seems to be doing a really good job with that as far yeah, as transgender that's true. people, that's true. as far as transgender people are concerned, but same-sex identity is not criminalized, but same-sex affection, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage, absolutely. In fact, the law, the most recent one that was passed in 2014 by one of our more progressive presidents, allegedly. is called the Same-Sex Marriage Prohibition Act. Never mind that nobody in Nigeria has ever actually tried to organize for the right to marry.
0: Oh, so it's, wow.
1: it's very fascinating. It's like we have more pressing problems because marriage is inviting the state into your relationship, right? If you're organizing within a state that's actively hostile to your existence, you don't want to invite the state into your relationship, especially when you can have Ceremonies around your commitment, around your love, around your union, that don't involve the state, that are just as valid, right?
0: I see. But do you have things like, I I just know that based on the movement here in the United States, that that a union that's recognized by the state enables or unlocks a lot of civil rights that you don't have otherwise like um, yeah like even visitation rights in a hospital or property rights inheritance rights rights to children if you have a legally recognized marriage by the state that it does make a difference is that not the case there
1: well that the thing is like even for heterosexual marriages here the rights that a woman has within a a marriage, are so limited that they're not really worth fighting for. For instance, a woman cannot confer citizenship to her children if she's married to a foreign national. Feminists are still fighting for spousal protections when in, in the event of the death of a spouse as it relates to inheritance. So even heterosexual marriage is not a very great place, a very great experience here. Therefore, fighting for same sex marriage would be like, it's not really a good use of anybody's time. It's not a good use of anybody's time. And my personal position really is that there shouldn't be a system that privileges certain relationships over others. But that's a whole other conversation. So Mm. let's not even get into that.
0: (laughs) Wow, that's so interesting. My goodness.
1: Yeah, we have a long way to go. You must remember that our democracy is extremely young and the laws that we're fighting against were the most archaic, the most authoritarian, the most dehumanizing laws because the people who designed our original constitution did not see us as human to begin with, right? So we're coming from a very far country, (laughs) Metaphorically, like the road that we have to travel is quite long. We haven't had time to reach our twelfth and thirteenth and fourteenth amendments.
0: (laughs) Wow! Yeah, that's what an interesting way of framing that. Well, Olu, this has just been so illuminating. I'm so grateful for this conversation. I certainly I expected to have a complicated conversation and have all kinds of new things introduced. And I'm so grateful for the books that you recommended. So grateful for you sharing all of your experience and wisdom. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to share with listeners?
1: I think just the world is big, but if you have a bigger heart, you'll be fine. I think if you have a bigger heart and you have a lot of curiosity, you'll be fine. The problems are big. The world is big and the problems are big, but curiosity and generosity of spirit will allow us to imagine new realities and then heed the courage that is necessary to make those realities possible. So just be more open. I'm saying this to your listeners, right? Be more open because there's so much there's so much out there yeah
0: beautiful well thank you once again for being with us today I'm so grateful for this conversation
1: thank you so much for having me Amy. I really enjoyed talking with you
0: Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Allabest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.